This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. I am Anirban. I am a trained historian, writer and teacher. I started this podcast on 15th August 2020. My objective was simple and straightforward. Why and how do people respond to the past? Second, what are some of the ways in which past influences are present understanding decisions or prejudices? I wanted to present some unusual aspects of the past of people. of places or of things which otherwise appear clear settled or obvious to a majority of us that is why i began with an episode on what it means to be an indian did you know that many chinese muslims took shelter in kashmir during the 50s did you know that um, some british Soldiers posted in far-flung Burma during the Second World War left video messages to their family members, and some of those messages were played back to their descendants 50 years later in a memorial ceremony. Did you know that Emperor Nero did not fiddle while Rome burned? Did you know that Guru Granth Sahib? or the holy book of the six has a section in which you find teachings by a muslim saint these were some of the themes of my episodes do please listen to some of those episodes or all of them when you find time this episode the one with which i begin today is about books yes and no More particularly, it is a brief, indeed, a very introductory history of paperback books. Um, I begin with a simple question: How did the arrival of paperback books change the experience of reading? Many of you are probably wondering why I'm not asking that question. with regard to kindle readers or online reading in general some of you probably read robert dunton's the case for books past present and future dunton of course is the foremost historian of books in the world and you must read his work not just uh, that book but uh, no my objective is far more humble this is only to resume a conversation with you it is as i used to say often to share with you uncommon histories of common things let's begin over the strain that picked up over the last decade or so there's been a debate as to whether books I mean electronic books will eventually overtake printed books 
in popularity. The same question may be asked um, with regard to audiobooks now. And there are projections that audiobooks will at some point overtake uh, the printed books in terms of sales and popularity. That probably will happen at some point in future, but for a long time yet, uh, let me anticipate my argument and uh, that of many other book historians. For a long time yet, uh, the printed book will enjoy a solid increase in sales, markets, and popularity, which is not to say that uh, ebooks or audiobooks will not create a niche market too. All of them will survive and all of them will be accessed by a variety of audiences um, in um, different uh, degrees to a different extent. Uh, the debate clearly will take some more time to settle. But it is certainly clear that the ebook has emerged as an acceptable new form with which to access the written text. Now, of course, it is partly a post-paper or post-print age. This is probably also why historians have uh, begun some time ago a good deal of research on why and how the previously dominant form of printed books came to rule the market. How did the transition happen from manuscripts to printed books? And that is in fact uh, the basis of the second generation of questions with regard to uh, the form of books. Paperbacks, of course, comes under the overall scope of these second generation of questions on the form of books. It was when uh, the paperback books eventually left uh, the conventional hardback volumes behind in terms of sales and in terms of creating and maturing a far larger readership that fresh questions were raised about uh, changing forms of books. At heart, the reason for the growth of printed books is really simple. They were cheaper to produce and to sell. It made sense for more readers to purchase paperbacks simply because they were now able to access the same content at a more affordable price. It was to that extent a classic case of democratization of knowledge by means of a commercially viable and sustainable technology. But it was not just that. Peter Mandler, the formidable cultural historian of Englishness and a Cambridge University Don, has published an insightful paper on what he calls the paperback revolution. He uses the word revolution in a particular sense. 
The introduction of paperbacks created a larger readership for specialist knowledge. It gradually authorized the social common sense in Britain and in the US that the specialist academic or the professional expert knows better on subject of public interest. In so doing, the paperback did not remain a mere format in which printed books were designed or circulated. Paperbacks became a cultural artifact which successfully pushed or reoriented popular common sense or conventional wisdom towards an entirely new direction. Now, Peter Mandler is an old master of writing histories of how cultural artifacts mold public taste or equips a public with a particular disposition or orientation. He had earlier published on how large country houses, for instance, came to define over time the idea of what it means to be British. He has also written on how the idea of possessing history as a cultural attribute eventually became a necessary qualification of Englishness. In this paper on paperbacks, he makes a modest claim. He does not claim, for instance, that the paperback suddenly turned books by professional academics into bestsellers. He doesn't say that at all. Then, as now, the advice literature was the real bestseller. Advice literature as in the self-help books. The highest selling paperback book in America between 1940 and 1965 was uh, Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care. But Mandler does say that it was also the first time when monographs by academic professionals began to be sold in large numbers. Anthropologist Ruth Benedict's Patterns of Culture, for instance, sold over a million copies. These sort of books were abstract and conceptual. They did not target the individual looking for survival advice. They were not even marketed aggressively. Now, these type of books, based on academic research and writing, and across a wide variety of academic disciplines, did not have a popular audience before the paperbacks came along. The mass market paperback was a global phenomenon, but its impact was earliest and the most intense in the Anglophone world. Mandler studies two leaders in the genre, two leading publishers, of course, Pelican Books in the UK and Mentor Books in the USA. Alan Len, the owner of Penguin, did not have any burning desire to make specialist research available to the public. He was a businessman with an interesting but moderately risky idea looking to use new technology to trump 
the conventional snobbery of the book traders and readers. He wished to sell cheaper edition of middle-brow novels and biographies to a provincial and suburban readership. But the Penguin paperbacks became so popular that they were probably the first books to be stalked by chain stores, news agents, railway bookstalls, and even tobacconists, people who sold tobacco. By 1940, 50% more working class readers were buying books rather than borrowing from a library. Success pushed Len towards more philanthropic reflections. He had left school at the age of 16, and he now wanted to help those in a similar situation. He thought of paperback books as uh, portable evening classes. He married this educational drive with a soft corner for left-wing politics and even published a moving essay in Left Review in 1938 called Books for the Millions. The Pelican series was to be primary vehicle for this spatial project. The working class was now to take control of their lives by reading good scholarship and the latest research. So, Alan Len was now keen to make the working class read specialist knowledge and educate themselves in the evening. In that essay called Books for the Millions, he wrote, The Pelican series was designed to allow the working class to access contemporary thought and scientific knowledge so that they were in a position to control the future in the light of knowledge of the past. They were now to read Pelican books on history, on sociology, on politics, economics, science, arts, and later almost all academic disciplines. Observers were stunned by the titles which sold 50,000 or more. R. H. Tawney's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism and Freud's Psychopathology of Everyday Life, 50,000 plus copies in the 1940s. The US was a larger market as a matter of fact. It had twice the population of Britain but half the number of bookstores. The first Pelicans appeared in the US in 1946 and for a while ran quite successfully. The books were a mix of recent academic works, reprints of classics and some fresh commissions. But two practices peculiar to selling books in America eventually caused a rift a conflict um, between Alan Len and his American partners. First, American newsstand owners 
would not stock highbrow books unless the publisher also provided them with ready-made bestsellers such as Pulp Fiction. Second, the American market required colorful book covers. Now, Lean considered both of these practices somewhat beneath his dignity and sold off his stake to his American partners in 1948. Incidentally, neither color nor illustration became common to Penguin Books until the 1960s. In the US, Penguin Books were rebranded as Signet Books and Pelicans as Mentor Books. The names changed, but Pelicans and Mentors remained committed to the same mission until at least the 1960s. They even shared the same slogan, good reading for the millions. They did not have any competition until anchor books and vintage books came along in the 50s. Even the latter vintage books was higher priced and targeted college or university students. Mentor books remained uh, the undisputed market leader until the 1960s. This was also a time when rising educational opportunities led to a growing readership for non-fiction. Paperbacks did encourage a new readership. In America, for instance, only 21% of adults read books and even less bought them. Paperbacks most certainly stimulated the bored suburban housewife to read, since they were now available in the neighborhood grocery shop. Of course, plenty of men became readers too. Besides, a good many bookshops dedicated to paperbacks were opened in the 1950s, especially in college campuses and uh, small towns. Bookshops in America were earlier limited to a handful of large cities. Now, this new bookshops gave birth to a whole new relationship between books and their readers by changing the experience of purchasing them. Signposted stacks of books which the buyers themselves could access and which they could freely carry to the billing desk at the front was a matter of some wonder to the British, uh, to Times Literary Supplement, for instance. It wrote about this new development with a great deal of curiosity, pleasant uh, amusement, as a matter of fact. By then, mentor books were sailing in heavy traffic areas, such as bus rail or air terminals. The book American Diplomacy, written by uh, former diplomat George Kennan, reportedly sold extremely well on newsstands. Crane Brinton, a Harvard historian, was mildly shocked to find his work in newsstands. But for him, it was a pleasant feeling as well. Now, these were new readers altogether. These were not the ones who now switched from reading fiction to non-fiction. 
This audience fueled the purchase of books in America by 250% between um, the 20 years between 1947 and 1967. In Britain, the story was slightly different. The average Briton was academically less qualified than the average American, but he usually read more and had access to neighborhood bookshops. A survey in 1947 found that two-thirds of all adults read books, and a third of all adults bought paperbacks. Mandler shows that probably half of them bought penguins. But while paperback sales in America grew consistently higher, in Britain the growth for a time after the war was less striking than the pre-war years. That's, that's understandable. It was partly a consequence of Alan Lent's refusal to aggressively market the books. Sales picked up again during and after the 1960s, but the shift of readership from fiction to non-fiction was a common uh, feature in Britain as well. Pelican and Mentor prized the choice of books by the reader as an education in itself. They made sure that their books were prominently displayed in the bookshops and the new book supermarkets made that eminently possible. This is also why they offered titles across a very large range, science, social science, art, philosophy, religion, classics, and archaeology. The expert bestsellers now included classics, literature, and history. But as a matter of fact, these categories were themselves changing rapidly. The making of the English walking class a huge 900-page book on the history of the working class in England uh, in medieval to modern times by E.P. Thompson, believe it or not, was a Pelican bestseller in 1968. Between them, history and psychology accounted for nearly half of the Pelican bestsellers while literature and sociology brought up the rear. Intriguingly enough, science books did not do quite as well, nor economics, nor politics. In America, on the other hand, history and literature did not do quite as well. Sociology and anthropology worked relatively better with Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead selling quite briskly. Psychology, when not addressing questions of sex, did not do too well either. But American readers displayed an insatiable appetite for comparative religion and philosophy. The English translation of the Quran, for instance, sold very well, as did the Gita, and the teachings of the compassionate Buddha. But what did the readers think about the books they read? 
In the past, uh, paperbacks had been criticized for trivializing serious literature by making it more widely available. Did paperbacks falsify history? For instance, by reducing history to the most ridiculous accumulation of facts and figures? Did they represent merely a culture vulture wish? Ironically, that last quotation is taken from a Pelican bestseller called The Uses of Literacy by Richard Hogart. Peter Mandler was confident that these books offered many readers important resources to cultivate and develop the idea of a more educated, a better quality self. It helped them to develop their emotional and intellectual self. Susan K. Langer's Philosophy in a New Key, for instance, offered an explicit program for developing a sense of individual purpose. They facilitated a new type of self-making in that they made available valuable resources which allowed a large number of new readers to think and to act in utterly new ways. They were a means of a new round of gentrification or self-improvement. Sociology and psychology sold more, probably because it was also the time the readers were meeting new peoples and new cultures like never before. And they needed informed guides on how best to conduct themselves before these new peoples and new cultures. As C. Wright Mills wrote in his best-selling The Sociological Imagination, people needed to locate their personal troubles within a larger social structure. Mandler concludes that these 20 years or so of the rise of the paperback made possible the wide circulation of a distinct political and social sensibility. The post-war boom in Britain and America had ushered in a new wave of affluence and educational opportunities were growing fast. They, in turn, spurred deeper existential questions among the masses. Along with the widening of their horizons due to, to the Second World War. Now, people practically were walking up to a whole new world all of a sudden. And they had to find their bearings within this, this new appearing world, fledgling world. It had to be made sense of. Fortunately, the cultural elite was ready armed with the anti-fascist and democratic ethos. They were keen to circulate these values to the masses as the new set of rules of this new world. But the ideas promoted uh, did not teach conformism. For uh, later, those who would stage the late 1960s rebellions all over the world 
themselves were keen readers of paperback books. Finally, the very fact that some books sold more than others also created a vibrant feedback loop between the readers and the publishers. If the publishers were surprised by the surge in sales of some books, such as the Quran, for instance, they did not stop publishing it. Thus, there emerged a free market relation between new readers and their publishers. Although it may not, in reality, have been entirely free or completely driven by popular choices. But uh, what it did accomplish is a new and definite respect for the specialist as a worthy and credible commentator on public affairs. It encouraged market respect for the professional expert as a popular educator. It gave birth, in fact, to the now common popular expectation that a reasonably educated reader may be able to access the essentials of a public concern once it is intelligibly written up by a credible expert. This impulse of the society, or at least of the relatively educated among them, that experts must write about serious public concerns, probably also uh, reduced to some extent uh, the propensity of extremist pamphleteers to rouse the rabble with misleading conspiracy theories or other means of fear or anxiety mongering. It might have also given birth to the writer of popular nonfiction, that gentle and responsible mediator between ivory tarred dons and their commoner admirers. To give um, an exceedingly uh, familiar example to the Indian listeners, let me invoke the example of historian Ramachandra Guha. He is probably the most popular historian of contemporary India. And this has happened solely on the strength of uh, the cells of several of his books on modern Indian history, principally the book uh, called India After Gandhi. Then again, for students of history, another familiar example will be Professor Romila Thapa. She has spent uh, her life entirely within uh, a university. How come uh, Professor Thapa is uh, among the most popular historians, uh, considered a major authority on uh, Indian history, really? There are only two possible answers. She published a paperback bestseller on ancient India in the early 60s. And uh, it has since remained in print as a matter of course. And it has later been revised and expanded. But uh, for nearly 60 years since then, history of ancient India meant Romila Thapa to the ordinary Indian reader. Second, uh, she also wrote a textbook for uh, standard 10 students who went on 
to schools which follow the curriculum designed by the Central Board of Secondary Education. The general point I am trying to make here is that paperbacks made it possible for the average Indian reader to become familiar with specialists in various disciplines, various academic disciplines, to read their work, to read their intelligent commentaries on contemporary political and other uh, public concerns. Now, I do not know if paperbacks produced the same effect on you, the reader. Do you take paperbacks for granted? You probably do. Paperbacks came to India probably before you were born. Most of you who are listening to me now. Uh, it probably would not excite your imagination to, to recall the history of paperbacks and its social and cultural contributions beyond the fact that they are cheaper, as a matter of fact, relative to hardline and hardbound books. But do tell us what you think about your own experience of reading paperbacks. How do you uh, distinguish between the experience of reading paperback books, books that you can touch and reading books on um, a Kindle uh, reader or on your computer screens. It will be lovely to hear from you. Uh, on that note, uh, this is your friend Onirban signing off on the first episode of this second series of History Chatter. Do get back to us with your feedback. It'll be lovely to hear from you. But do remember to subscribe to History Chatter on Epilogue Media website, GeoSavan, Spotify, Ghana, Hubhopper and Apple Podcasts. There's so many options to choose from. I, for one, am looking forward to get back to you next week with another episode of History Chatter. <laughs>